This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. So we're into the second full day of our sashim. How are people feeling? Maybe actually before I start, I wanted to share um, a short passage from the Ehe Koroku, uh, which is a fast, or writings by Dogen. Um, and Mako yesterday had mentioned this Lotus uh, Sutra story of the jewel. So here's um, Dogen talking about that same story. He says, everyone holds a luminous jewel. All embrace a precious gem. If you do not turn your attention around to look within, you will wander from home with a hidden treasure. Have you not heard it said? In the ear, it is like the great and small sounds of an empty valley, none not complete. In the eye, it is like a myriad myriad images under the thousand suns, not able to avoid casting shadows. If you seek it outside your sense experience, you will hinder the living meaning of Zen. So come back um, inward. You know, that's the encouragement. And um, attune to our own senses. I think our senses are what kind of um, connect us to this moment. They ground us in this uh, very reality. So, um, <clears throat> when I uh, lived at Tassahara for a couple of years, there's uh, one memory that keeps coming back to me um, and changing. The meaning of it changes. Um, and uh, very briefly, the, the memory is just um, maybe like halfway through the time that I lived there, it's probably after a year or so, I was standing alone in the work circle uh, at night and I heard uh, an airplane going all, uh, overhead and I looked up and I could see the lights from the plane and um, a very simple question um, kind of arose in my mind, like, I wonder what kind of life those people are living. Um, And I think what was in that was like, um, here I am living in a place that's kind of in the middle of uh, nowhere, in the wilderness. Um, I don't have heat in the winter. Um, It's quiet except for the, the sounds of the, the creek. Um, and I felt um, distant somehow from the lives of those people in the plain, uh, which felt odd to me because I, I've lived that life most of my life. Um, and it occurs to me now that I think there was some um, kind of deep feeling of landing in my experience at Tassajara. So maybe it took me a year to kind of um, 
feel like that was my life. And in profoundly feeling like that was my life, I felt like my old life, I had a kind of curiosity about it. I wonder what that was like. <laughs> um, so I think some kind of um, smaller version of that can happen in Sashin. That at some point in Sashin, um, we... we take this up as, as our life. Like, this is what we do. You know, we get up at this time, we serve food to each other, we sit quietly facing the wall. So I think when we start Sashin, all of that feels very um, foreign or um, dramatic or something. Um, but I think uh, it's possible through the course of Sashin to um, settle into this way of being such that it actually becomes our normal. Um, I think we humans are so adaptable, like whatever we're kind of put into, eventually it just feels normal. Um, it's kind of a fascinating aspect of our humanity. Um, so we might not be there yet, but um, <laughs> stay open to the possibility that this actually um, could kind of feel normal in some way, or that we can fully land in this as our life um, and not worry about some other life uh, outside of this space. So when we were preparing for Sashin, Mako asked if um, I would be willing to if, if maybe Pat and I would be willing to give talks during this session. Um, and of course I said, yes, you know, that, that feels like an honor. And I said, what would you like me to talk about? Or what, you know, what's the theme of session? And she said, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment, you know, we're celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment. So enlightenment, you know, is a, is a theme maybe that we can talk about. And then the little voice in my head said, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, being in Zen and at, being asked to talk about enlightenment um, is a pretty big trap, you know. <laughs> um, and so immediately I, re- I realized I was walking into a trap, but I'm, I'm willing to do it for you all. Um, <clears throat> so I think... You know, Mako mentioned that, you know, often in, in our experience of San Francisco Zen Center or Soto Zen, that enlightenment's not talked about so much, um, or certainly not emphasized. And um, I was thinking about, like, the koan tradition of these dialogues of, um, you know, challenging each other to, to find some new way of um, being. And I think um, we're so used to those challenges that anytime somebody says, oh, I think this is what enlightenment is, in Zen we kind of expect like somebody to say, is that so? You know? um, so I think we, we eventually get cautious to even sort of harbor an idea because we know some response is coming. Like, uh-oh. Um, you know, mostly, um, you know, we're celebrating the Buddha's enlightenment, so... I think maybe we'll be talking a lot about the Buddha and his enlightenment in particular, but also I think more generally um, 
you know, enlightenment in Buddhism, you know, what, what might that be? What might our understanding um, of that look like? So maybe I'll start with the, you know, the Buddha's story, which um, I've heard Mako mention in, in a number of other talks, and she sort of briefly mentioned yesterday, kind of culminated with, um, well, it started with this um, uh, kind of realizing that asceticism wasn't getting to the heart of the matter somehow and accepting help, accepting nourishment um, from a milkmaid passing by. Um, And then somehow that turning, once he kind of felt better, that turned into, um, I've heard it said, a kind of recollection of a time that he was a child, and, I don't know, five or six maybe, and uh, I think his father was, somebody was working in the fields, or they were plowing the fields, and he was just sitting kind of watching, Um, and in a very simple way was just um, completely absorbed in the moment. But it was about simplicity. You know, he just sort of like, he was a kid and um, somehow very naturally felt a part of this world, felt connected to this world. So it's interesting that after all of these sort of um, intense and... um, disciplined practices um, that his enlightenment story kind of starts with this returning to something more simple, something more basic. Um, And I think that was, from the stories that I've read, that was sort of the impetus to go and and sit under the Bodhi tree. To just sort of be that simple, breathing, living, connected being again. Um, so in the process of that, you know, sitting for a number of days or 49 days or, you know, it varies in the stories, but at some point in the um, final evening, um, in his meditation, he was confronted by Mara. This, um, and Mara is a fascinating character in himself, um, quite brilliant in some ways. Um, but the very basic story is that the Mara offered a number of challenges to the Buddha to try and... He basically said, um, I should be the, the awakened one, and you know, who are you to usurp my place or something? Um, and so to get the Buddha to sort of back down, he offered a couple challenges. Um, the first one was, I think... Um, Temptation, lust, um, uh, desire. So he sort of brought these um, beautiful women in front of the Buddha. So why don't you do this instead? Why don't you hang out with them you know, and leave the awakening to me? Um, and the Buddha just sat, you know. Um, and then... Um, violence, anger, you know, the Mara sent his army to attack the Buddha. Um, And in some versions, the, you know, Mara's soldiers unleashed these arrows um, at the Buddha. In mid-flight, they all turned to flowers and fell in this um, kind of shower of flower petals over the Buddha. 
But in other versions, it's just that the Buddha just, you know, even in the face of danger, just sat. Just sat unmoved. Um, and then it's usually um, told that the, the final, um, kind of maybe in Mara's opinion, most powerful um, distraction uh, is doubt. So, um, again, he said, I, you know, I'm the one that's um, kind of worthy of this great experience. And uh, one story I, I saw today, like he had his whole army said they vouched for him. Like, yes, it should be Mara. Um, in, in essence, he was saying, who are you to, um, to take on something so powerful and profound? Who are you? And I think we all uh, somewhat intuitively understand how powerful that question is because quite often we're asking ourselves that question. Uh, we're um, assailed by doubt just in ourselves. We don't often need somebody else to doubt us. Um, and so when Mara's soldiers all um, vouched for him, like, yes, he's the one, um, Mara turned to Buddha and said, who vouches for you? You know, who's... Uh, and he just touched the, touched the ground. And the earth uh, shook or proclaimed, you know, yes, the Buddha is uh, worthy of awakening. So this is um, a great uh, allegory for our own practice, and even just in the course of a session, I think, or the course of a period of zazen, what are the the sort of distractions and um, and mostly internal, but internal and external? What are the kind of challenges that are um, given to us? Um, and how do we maintain some um, steadiness in the midst of that? So I want to speak briefly about one of the, the main challenges in session, um, and that's physical pain, discomfort. Um, think, you know, everybody at some point in Sashin has to um, encounter this challenge or wrestle with this, um, you know, feeling of discomfort, of unease, and um, sometimes, like, um, pain is our only kind of um, awareness, like we're not aware of much else but that pain in my knee or that pain in my back. Um, <clears throat> so I, I found a number of um, quotes from Suzuki Roshi about pain that um, I think I've always relied on um, Suzuki Roshi's teachings in this particular area. Um, 
I think the most helpful one is that he said, um, the only way you can endure your pain is to let it be painful. So that's the end of the, of the battle. That's the end of the wrestling with, how do I get out of this? How do I change my circumstances? It's turning to, oh, I can let it be painful. I can let this be this moment of my life. It's actually okay. So in uh, Crooked Cucumber, um, David Chadwick mentions that um, he says an important aspect of the training of almost all Japanese Zen Buddhism is learning to sit uh, calmly with physical pain. Um, And then he quotes Suzuki Roshi, you must welcome the pain, said Suzuki, Go with it. It is your teacher. I think this advice can, is helpful in so many areas of our life, but if, if we confront something that is you know, painful, but not just painful, like that we don't understand or that feels wrong, um, that has any kind of quality of discomfort, um, how is this thing, you know, one way we receive that is sort of like, no, I don't want to have that experience, or I'm going to use all my while to like outthink this this discomfort, um, to find all these tools of things that sometimes alleviate it. You know, sometimes these things work. Um, but I think you know, go with it. It is your teacher. Um, I think that's sort of that's that's practice. That's that's sort of what's different in practice than maybe our usual way. Um, if our usual way is to say, "How do I get out of this? How do I fix this?" Then practice is, "What is this teaching me? What do I need to uh, maybe understand, or maybe just open up to that I'm not?" You know. Maybe this pain is here because I'm not receiving this thing. And then there are times when, like I said, you know, uh, it's been my experience in Sashin um, that uh, certain kinds of pain are sort of all-encompassing. Like the totality of my experience feels like pain. Um, <clears throat> And in those sort of extreme moments of wrestling with pain, um, I'm comforted by, by this quote from Suzuki Roshi. He says, if pain exists just as pain, as a whole being, that is not pain anymore. If there is nothing but pain, what is it? That is Buddha. So again, I think in that there's a kind of um, turning to um, this extremely uncomfortable situation has this potential to awaken. Uh, And so when pain is the whole being, 
I think it doesn't mean like lost in pain, like hopeless. It means a kind of being upright with pain, um, total engagement with our painful uh, feeling. So if we meet pain and we're steady, like the Buddha was steady in this sort of rain of arrows, um, then we're Buddha. Um, And it's not exactly pain anymore. Um, And one thing I appreciate about Suzuki Roshi is that he, um, you know, he's famous for saying the most important thing and then it's followed by a thousand different things that, you know, on that day to him was the most important thing. But I think that expresses a kind of flexibility of, um, we can't just create one rule, like I got to do this and then I'll be okay. And yet we, we, we do often try and do this, like this is our coping. Um, but I think Suzuki Roshi can express both sides and so one of my favorite quotes, quotes from Suzuki Roshi was a, a student came to him and said, I think because he'd, he'd heard some of these other comments about pain, and, or he or she, I don't know, um, and wanted to kind of have a conversation with Suzuki about um, pain as the teacher, or how do I meet my pain? And they started to talk about pain, and Suzuki Roshi said, pain is tedious. So, uh, while I'm both encouraging us to see pain as, as a teacher, um, you know, not always so, you know. Um, sometimes uh, there's no meaning to our suffering. That's another quote from Suzuki Roshi. Um, So in Sashim, we get to have all of these experiences, or maybe we get to have all of these experiences. You know, maybe we learn something from pain. Maybe pain turns us. And maybe we're just sort of enduring. <laughs> um, oh, when, when will this end? You know, pain is tedious. <laughs> so... Um, I think another aspect of what we learn in Sashin is some um, ability to distinguish different kinds of pain. So when we say, um, you know, pain is the teacher, or to sit in the face of pain and meet pain, um, you know, sometimes pain actually means we're injuring ourselves or... um, we should take care of our body and mind. Um, So this is something we all have to navigate in our own experience. But I I do want to be clear that it's not, um, it's not always the goal to to just endure pain. Um, And especially when it gets to the point where we're just enduring it, Maybe we're not learning anything. Maybe we're just um, torturing ourselves. So um, I think we only know that distinction by being as awake with our experience as we can be, you know, and learning through experience.
So, having spoken about pain, let's go back to enlightenment. Um, and, <laughs> and maybe these two things are related. Um, <clears throat> so in this, this very Zen way of sort of deflecting enlightenment, um, two more quotes from Suzuki Roshi. He says, um, enlightenment is not some particular stage that you attain. not this thing you get or this level you achieve. And I'll come back to that because some of the other um, um, things I want to mention about um, teachers talking about enlightenment um, kind of verify that. So um, I think part of the way Zen deflects talking about enlightenment is because of this. Because if we talk about enlightenment then uh, we're just listening with that aspect of ourselves that wants to know how to do it, wants to understand. Um, And in a lot of ways, that's the opposite of uh, what some of these teachers will say about enlightenment. It's not about understanding or knowing how to do it. The other Suzuki Roshi quote that I that I love about enlightenment, he says, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people, only enlightened activity. Do you have a sense of what he means by that? An appropriate mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say more than that? Not really. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that. I think um, that when you're enlightened, you're really not very aware of being a person anymore. I mean, you're not really. The, the you is kind of gone, so. Mm. Yeah. Maybe you're not aware, or, or maybe it's not the sort of focus of your experience. It's not the sort of the lens that you're kind of viewing your experience through. I'm the enlightened one. It's me. Yeah, you gotta be aware if someone says that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's another quote that I also Suzuki Roshi that says that between practice and enlightenment, there is no between. Mm-hmm. There's no gap. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to get into that in a minute. Yeah, actually, let's go there now. So, um, are people familiar with Dogen's kind of um, enlightenment story? So it starts with this great question, uh, or doubt, maybe. So doubt is big, especially in Zen, as a kind of key to enlightenment. I think because doubt uh, contains within it a question. Like, well, I'm not sure that that's like what you tell me is correct, you know. Um, so that's helpful doubt, like doubt that you you are kind of inspired to um, verify with your own experience. Like, um, so does anybody know what Dogen's question was that he brought to all his teachers? Why you need to um, you know meditate if you're already enlightened? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So if we all are inherently uh, given Buddha nature, what's the point of practice? Why do we need to practice? So this is um, Masao Abe, who's a um, Dogen scholar. He says, the unavoidable question that tormented young Dogen was, why are resolve and practice considered necessary if the original Dharma nature is an endowment? In contrast to that, uh, this other doubt wonders how the Dharma nature is said to be originally endowed if resolve and practice are indispensable. So not only like why do we need to practice if um, everything has Buddha nature, but also there's a kind of doubt like how can everything have Buddha nature if it requires something to um, bring it about? So so Abe um, commentates on this question. He says, both of these doubts abstract equally in taking as an object the reality of the Buddha nature or awakening, which is fundamentally unobjectifiable and cannot be idealized. So in a way, this question was kind of an intellectual one. Um, Okay, I've heard about Buddha nature. Um, I understand how that's defined in Buddhist literature or language. Um, Why do I need to practice? Um, So uh, I think inherent in... um, in that question is a kind of uh, reification of enlightenment as this thing, you know. Zuki Roshi says it's not a, st- a stage we attain. And does anybody know what the kind of resolution of this question was? So there's a term in Japanese, um, shusho ito, to, the oneness of practice and attainment. Um, And this is something, you know, Dogen um, kind of preached his whole life after. In fact, I think it's in the Fukan Zazengi, he mentions practice attainment or practice enlightenment. It becomes one word for Dogen, a kind of hyphenated word. Um, So I think um, this speaks to the um, experience of awakening versus the idea of awakening. So 
So like any good question or good doubt that inspires us, it was a pretty all-encompassing one for Dogen. So our basis, like, um, you know, when Dogen was practicing at Tendai Buddhism at Mount Hie, um, and he, he started to have this doubt, Abe says, at, and yet precisely at that point, he could not help feeling restlessness and anxiety over his own um, existence, which was somewhat separated from the fundamental reality. So um, in the question, was it like, here's me, here's Dogen, and there's enlightenment, there's reality. Inherent in the question is this feeling of like, I don't, I don't feel, I feel separate, I feel separated. And that, um, I think, aptly, um, understandably involves a a sense of anxiety, of restlessness. Um, So... In its resolution, Abe says, In China, Dogen visited many leading priests of Lian Che and learned of the different characteristics of the five gates. Dogen wrote, Ultimately, I went to Tai Pai Peak and engaged in religious practice under the Zen master Ju Ching until I had resolved the great matter of Zen practice for my entire life. Abe says, at this point, Dogen attained an awakening that overcame all the previous idealization, conceptualization, and objectification of Dharma nature or Buddha nature. There was not even an inch of separation between the Dharma nature of and Dogen's existence. So Dogen's uh, really big on... Um, kind of practicing and speaking in non-dual ways of, um, you know, attempting to use language to express something that language can't really touch. Um, And so practice realization as a kind of single word is this unification of, um, you know, what we do, how we seek, how we uh, engage this body and mind on the one hand, which we maybe we call practice, and um, I don't know the clarity or the way that we um, that maybe we uh, feel more at peace in the world, or that we um, feel more connected to our world, to other people. Uh, maybe we can call that awakening or enlightenment. So that those two things kind of engage each other. There's a dynamic um, interplay, and both are one thing in that sense. So that's the non-duality of practice and the thing I'm trying to practice to get. Forgetting the quote from Jiju Yu Zamai, but he says something like... um, you know, just one moment of zazen, one moment of um, full engagement um, cannot be touched by all the, the Buddhas and ancestors. Um, 
So if we think we're practicing to get something like uh, attainment or enlightenment, maybe we miss the fact that in our engagement, in our practice, is our expression of attainment, is our expression of enlightened activity. So it seems like you know different schools of Buddhism talk about enlightenment differently. Um, I noticed in in, um, in that recounting, Dogen himself says, you know, I put to rest this question for my lifetime. You know, this was like this one moment, and then he was done. And I think the Buddha's story is kind of like that too. Um, this you know one moment, everything came to a head, and it was you know completely changed forever. Um, but I know, you know, what little I know about Rinzai Zen is they use the word enlightenment sometimes to mean, or, or in Tibetan Buddhism, you know, bodhicitta can mean um, awakening, but it can also mean that very first glimpse or aspiration towards awakening. Um, so, um, in uh, in the case of Zen master Hakuin. Um, I always love um, this sort of recounting of his life. Um, it says Hakuin had achieved his initial entrance into enlightenment at 24 during his pilgrimage. In the years that followed, he had other Satori experiences, large ones and small ones, in numbers beyond count. Um, that's a quote from him. Um, they had deepened and broadened his original enlightenment but he still did not feel free. He was unable to integrate his realization into his ordinary life and felt restricted when he attempted to express his understanding to others. The final decisive enlightenment that brought his long religious quest to an end occurred on a spring night in 1726, his 41st year. He was reading the Lotus Sutra at the time. It was a chapter on parables where the Buddha cautions his disciple Shariputra against savoring the joys of personal enlightenment and reveals to him the truth of the Bodhisattva's mission, which is to continue practice beyond enlightenment, teaching and helping others until all beings have attained salvation. Hakuin narrates the crucial moment in his autobiography, Wild Ivy. Hakuin says, A cricket made a series of churs at the foundation stones of the temple. The instant they reached the master's ears, which is him referring to himself in the third person, which I love, the instant they, refer, they reached the master's ears, he was one with enlightenment. Doubts and uncertainties that had burdened him from the beginning of his religious quest suddenly dissolved and ceased to exist. From that moment on, he lived in a great, in a, in a state of great emancipation. In le- the enlightening activities of the Buddhas and patriarchs, the Dharma I to grasp the sutras, they were now his without any doubt, without any lack, whatever. So I guess even Hakuin um, had some final moment where it all kind of changed. But I love the part leading up to that where he had an enlightenment and then 
he had some more enlightenments, and we have a series of other enlightenments. Um, and there's this word satori, which kind of means enlightenment and kind of doesn't mean enlightenment. Um, so very quickly we realize that the, the tricks we get into when we try and talk about um, being awake, um, how kind of futile that is in a way. Um, but one of the most kind of beautiful expressions of enlightened, verbal expressions of enlightenment, we actually, to me, it, we, we, we chanted this morning in the Genjo Koan. So the Genjo Koan says, enlightenment is like the moon reflected in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. Although its light is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass, or even in one drop of water. Enlightenment does not divide you. Just as the moon does not break the water, you cannot hinder enlightenment, just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. And he says, each reflection of the dewdrop reflecting the moon, each reflection, however long or short its duration, manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitlessness of the moonlight in the sky. For some reason, today it occurred to me that this line, however long or short its duration, um, is this kind of um, poking um, our understanding of enlightenment as this one thing that occurs and then we're forever okay or something. Um, And I think it reflects Suzuki Roshi's understanding that there's no, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people, only enlightened activity. So we can be the vehicle of enlightened activity, um, and then we can go back to the being the vehicle of the world according to me, or what I want. Um, and and you know sometimes that feels like a like a defeat. Like there's such a kind of clear wish to just be able to do this one thing, like achieve enlightenment and then everything's... I, I, sometimes I call this the idea of retirement. <laughs> um, that if we just do this one thing, we'll, we'll get to like sit on the beach and, you know, <laughs> play golf every day. And, um, and I don't think, you know... I don't think that that idea is so helpful, um, <laughs> or it can become very discouraging to our practice. So um, I think, you know, when he says each reflection, however long or short its duration, it's kind of poking um, uh, a pin in that balloon idea of like there's just this one thing and then everything's great. Um, but what I love about it is that no matter if it's long or short. It still manifests the vastness of the dewdrop. It still realizes the limitless, limitlessness of the moonlight in the sky. So this is the same thing as this line from Gigi Yuzamai that just one moment of engaged sitting, um, it doesn't have to last forever. It's still 
enlightened activity. It's still practice realization. Um, And in that sense, then it isn't personal. It's not about me attaining that thing that now I have and I can lord over other people, you know. So how are we doing for time? I don't have a clock. Okay, great. So maybe we can um, spend our time together um, just trying to actualize the the moon drop, I mean the the dew drop on the grass. Can we be just one little bubble of water that reflects the totality of our interconnection. So, uh, yeah, thank you for your attention.